0: I want to start just uh, expressing great appreciation for this church. You know, as uh, we've had a a rocky week and a heavy week in many accounts, it's just been a joy to get even on social media and see your posts, see your comments, see the prayerfulness and the thoughtfulness and the maturity of this your perspectives. Um, Many of you I've followed and and, uh, it's been a great encouragement, not only me personally, just um, Looking for the right text, looking for the right perspective, the right response, but also just to know that to be a part of a covenant people that, that guard the gospel together, to know that you too are there uh, wrestling through these same things. So thank you for that. And I thank you that many of my kids follow you and knowing that they're also reading the posts and the comments and the, and seeing the demeanor by which you guys have have represented Christ well in this, so i just uh, i 'm grateful for that, and I just want to thank you just personally as a as an elder and as a dad and and just a, a brother in Christ. Um, we're going to be talking about Matthew sixteen if you want to turn there now matthew sixteen we 're going to read it in just a second, but our text today is really about one thing it 's about a, a warning, and we 're going to dissect the warning. Um, a few years ago, uh, traveled to India, one of the trips out into the jungle. And, and when we were, J.J. Uh, Tartaglia and I decided we would take a, a side trip down a scooter, just the two of us, a little frightful journey through India, and went down this little trail. We said, wonder where this goes. So we saw a little gap between trees in the woods, and we, we went down, and we ended up in a little village. And as we walked around the village, uh couple of uh, tribal guys, uh, there's a picture I want to show you, um, came up to us. And uh, maybe it's not up there. That's okay. Imagine a tribal guy. Imagine uh, you, you're very primitive, National Geographic. You've got a, a guy that looks like he's wearing a skirt, no shirt on. Two of them walk up and they have axes hanging from their shoulders. Okay? So J.J. and I look nothing like that. We're clearly not from around this part. Uh, You know, we we couldn't fake it very well. And I'll admit, uh, J.J. was a little scared, and I pretended that I wasn't for his sake. Uh, So fools rush in where angels fear to tread, right? So that's me. And so we walked up, and these two guys came to us, and oddly, one of the men spoke English. And we find out in talking to him, there we go talking to him that he was actually known as the village drunk. And and he, he came up to us and we began to talk and he said, what are you guys here for? And we said, well, we're here representing Jesus Christ. Well, tell me about it. And so we got into this great gospel conversation and it was intense. JJ and I praying for this guy, crying out to him to receive Christ. And he said, yeah, I know of this, Jesus. He said he began to justify his life. He began to justify his animistic views. And at a point where we we felt like that all of heaven was lining up for this guy to repent and turn his life to Christ, he said, hey, I have a theology degree. I don't know. He said, I have a master's in theology. He said, do you want to see my certificate? It's at the house. What what do you say? He said, God's not impressed with ink and paper. And he just dropped his hands. He had nothing left to give. Well, earning salvation, earning favor, we're going to talk about that today. Today's focus is about a warning. We're going to look at the context of the warning. We're going to look at the content of the warning and the consequence of the warning. Turn with me to Matthew 16, 5 through 12. It says this, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said this, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember? The five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood what he what he did not tell them, that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, this takes us deep into the Gospel of Matthew. We've been at it over a year and a half, I think, uh, walking through the Gospel of Matthew. And here we are. If you'll remember that last week, uh, John talked about a confrontation that Jesus had with these Pharisees, with these Sadducees, where they were demanding a sign. Well, that's walks us into the beginning of the context of this great warning First of all, let's talk about the characters. You really have three groups of people that we need to understand to know what this text means, to know what Jesus is talking about. Now, John last week talked about Pharisees and Sadducees at some length. So I'm going to give you just a sort of a Cliff Notes version or a Wikipedia version for you millennials out there. You don't know what Cliff Notes are, right? You do? All right, I'm not as old as I thought I was. So the Pharisees, the Pharisees were staunch They were religious leaders. They were strict keepers of the law. Not a bad thing. They obeyed the law of Moses. But they also had developed this this set of traditions. They called it the tradition of the elders. Other practices outside of the law that they believed that also made them righteous before the Lord. They also believed they broke the tradition of the elders. They were sinning just as if they broke the law. And eventually the tradition of the elders actually was elevated above the law itself. They were fairly popular with the people, they came from the people, but really the people couldn't live up to their law. Unless you were willing to become a Pharisee, abandon your family, abandon your job, abandon your hometown, and follow these guys around, it was impossible to live up to the righteous standards that the Pharisees had set up. Jesus condemns them. He he, he points out one of these traditions of the elders. The Pharisees said this. Look, Scripture says, honor your mother and father. We know that, right? It's one of the Ten Commandments. But they said, look, if you want to follow us, you can tell your mother and father that my honor to you, I'm given to God, so I don't have to give you any honor. You see? Tradition of the elder elevated over Scripture. The key to the Pharisees' understanding is that they added to God's requirements in the law. God had a requirement. The Pharisees added to those requirements. They didn't need faith because everything was earned. Their cleanliness was earned. Their righteousness was earned in giving, in memorizing, in worshiping. They were earning their position before God in their mind. Jesus says this in Matthew fifteen seven through 9. He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Those are the Pharisees, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were also religious leaders, but they were more materialistic. Now, we hear materialistic, we think wealth, and they were very wealthy. They were very tied in with the political establishment. Power was important to them, but they were materialistic in their worldview. The only thing that existed is what they saw what lived in this temporal world. They denied angels. They denied the resurrection of Christ. They denied the resurrection of anybody. They didn't believe in miracles. So everything was explained by the things they could see in front of them. The key here is that they reduced God's requirements in the law to the temporal world. They reduced them. They also didn't need faith. Why did they need faith? They could see what they wanted to see. They could... They can ration out and reason answers. They didn't need faith for anything. Everything is proven. Why did they need God in the first place? Jesus says this in Matthew 22 about the Sadducees. You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. You don't understand the Bible and you're denying the power of God. These two groups weren't exactly friends. And it's interesting, there's really only two occasions that I can think of where we see these guys coming together. One is a part of a council called the Sanhedrin, where they basically kept themselves in power together, even though they opposed each other in most views, and then against Christ. And here we see them again, and Jesus warns us of them. They were united against Christ. You see, the true gospel draws a clear line. There are those who believe and those who do not believe. And it requires faith, faith they had no room for, the gospel and it happens now. You know, the gospel always demands a response. And the church, at least the pretenders, the state, the culture, the individuals, we all have consequences when faced with the gospel. We have much to lose. When the gospel comes, of Christ really is he who he says he is, he sets moral standards, he defines institutions, he provides accountability, he calls us to account so you have the Pharisees, a religious group that earned salvation added to the gospel. You have the Sadducees who are materialistic by nature, taking away from God's requirements. And then these 12 disciples, common men who gave their life, left everything to learn from Christ. So far, they're bystanders in most of the stories that we've seen. So that, those are the characters. What about the story story? I told you last week, and if you were here, John preached on it, that there was a confrontation between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Christ himself. And they demanded a sign to prove that he was who he was. They didn't need faith, right? They wanted to see a sign. And Jesus rebukes them for it. And now we see him turn to these disciples and say, let me tell you what just happened. Let me give you a warning. It was a tense moment last week. You see, these Pharisees and Sadducees had set the cultural view. They set the view within God's people, they controlled the day and they hounded Jesus continually. They, they challenged his practices. They challenged his teachings. They challenged his followers. They challenged his authority. They challenged his knowledge of scripture and his pedigree. No doubt it was a tiresome journey when these religious zealots would come by. If we look at Mark chapter eight, I, I can show you that this is true. This is Mark's account of the same passage that we just read in Matthew, but Mark 8, 11 through 12, listen to this. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now look what Mark tells us. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly no sign will be given to this generation. You see, tiresome religious practice, Many of us may have felt like that this week, a deep sigh in our spirit to say, boy, the world constantly, constantly looking for a way around the gospel, looking for a way of self-justification, looking for a way of freedom that's really bondage. we we'll look in our text in chapter verse 5. He says, when the disciples reached the other side, they'd forgotten to bring any bread. You see, they went either around or across the Sea of Galilee. We don't know which. But they get over there and they recognize that Peter, James, I mean, who was supposed to bring the bread? We don't have any bread. Mark says they actually had one loaf. But the point is they forgot to bring enough provision. They didn't have it. Verse 6, Jesus says, hey, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They didn't understand it. Because what did they say in verse 7? They began discussing it among themselves, saying... We brought no bread. So they clearly misunderstand Jesus. They're talking. We don't have any bread. Jesus says, hey, watch out for the leaven. And they say, man, we're in trouble. We brought no bread. How can we get bread now? If we can't get bread from the religious people of our day, if we can't get bread from the ones who spend their life making sure there's no yeast in their bread, and we forgot the bread, what are we to do? Jesus must be judging us for our forgetfulness. And now we must find bread or God too will judge us for being unrighteous and eating yeast. So there's your context where Jesus gives him this warning. Now let's look at the content of the warning, the content. Verse 8 says, but Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, ye of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have No bread. Why are you worried about food? You see, Jesus had given him plenty of teaching about food. They'd heard it. They had no excuse from knowledge. Look at Matthew 6, 25. Jesus said, told him this, I'll tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body. What are you going to put on? Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Down to verse 31 and 32. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father already needs knows that you need them all. Also in John six twenty seven, they would have heard these words. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, they responded selfishly, immaturely, trivially. Is Jesus chastising me because I forgot to bring the food? Is Jesus chastising me because of my religious practice, my inability to get bread that doesn't have yeast in it? Jesus says, why are you doing that? Why are you so set on that? I'm not talking about food, he says. It's about something else. Look at verse 9 and 10. Go on with the content of his warning here. He tells them, Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 on how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Do you not perceive you see, this requires faith. Don't you see? Don't you understand? Don't you trust me? They didn't understand, we see, because they had little faith, he said. He doesn't say they have no faith, but they had little faith. They were immature. You see, two weeks ago, we looked at this in this room, but, but they lived it, that Jesus himself had, had stood in front of a crowd. And after a long day, he saw 5,000 mostly Jewish followers in front of him, men, and then their wives and their children, and they were hungry, and he, he took these loaves, he took these 12, I mean, sorry, five bread loaves, and he broke them off, and he he distributed them, and he collected, in the end, 12 left over. We talked about this week, last week, but Jesus says, do you remember how many are left over? Number one, I have the ability to provide food. Why are you worried? Why don't you trust me? But also, not only that, look at the symbolism. I, I co- collected, you guys collected 12 baskets Twelve tribes of Israel, I've come to be the bread of life. I'm sufficient to save those who are perishing among the Jews. And then for the Gentiles, I'm sufficient. I can can feed a crowd. I can feed the Gentiles. And, And as you collected seven baskets, remember that in perfection, I'm sufficient to save the nations. You have little faith. Don't you yet perceive You see, these acts weren't a sign to prove that Jesus was trustworthy because Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and Sadducees for demanding a sign. He said you already have faith. The Holy Spirit clearly had already birthed in them the ability to understand some things. We see this next section next week. We'll see Peter make this great confession of Christ, the Son of the living God. Faith is a gift, but but God uses these events. God God gives us these things in our life, these memorials to incubate our faith. He says, Don't you remember? You see, he he brings their minds back to what he's done. Don't you remember these baskets are like a a, like a more a memorial, a bulwark for you to, to look at and say, God is faithful. God is trustworthy. And I wonder what memorials we have in our lives that we overlook in daily life. I was thinking about that for myself. You know, when uh, Michelle and I were uh, fairly newly married and b- before kids, we, we committed to go overseas with the International Mission Board. We committed to three months. But the problem was we had actually three barriers. As volunteers, we had to pay our own way. We didn't have the funds. As homeowners, we needed to figure out what to do with our house for the summer. And we had a dog. And dogs can be part of our need, right? They're, they can be a burden as well. So we had to figure it out. And we had almost no time because summer was vast approaching. And so we put it before the Lord. We said, Lord, these are three things we don't know what to do We were young in our faith and we just sort of threw it out there. Well, the next morning we found out a member in our, of our church who, who needed a place to stay for the summer and their son had always wanted a dog, but they're moving to a place they couldn't get a dog after the summer. They would love to take our house. And We went to the mailbox that afternoon to get the mail, and there was a $100 bill anonymously in our mailbox. Who in the world did that? I have no idea. It wasn't enough, but it was confidence to say, okay, Lord, that's not been our normal normal plan. You don't run home and check your mailbox. Maybe there. Same thing, you know, when we were crying out to the Lord and confirmation on, on, on adoption, a lack of funds, and yet God confirmed and God provided. He provided so many ways including even a miscarriage that allowed us to go. He says, what's your confidence in me? Where is it? Don't you remember? Maybe you have those things in your life where you look back and say, I remember the baskets, Lord. I remember. Forgive me for my anxiety. Forgive me for my worry. Forgive me for my lack of faith in temporal things. Verse 11, he goes on with the content of his warning. He says, how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven and the Pharisees and Sadducees. See, this is a different question for the first two. The first thing he says, why are you discussing bread among yourselves? And the answer was clearly they have little faith. And then he says this, do you not perceive? And the answer is no, they don't yet perceive. And now he says, how is it you fail to understand? And here we get our warning. The answer is leaven. How do you fail to understand? The answer is leaven. He tells them to beware of leaven. See, leaven is a word for yeast. Anybody that, that bakes knows that it doesn't take very much yeast to make, you know, flat bread, fluffy bread. It, you take a, a little bit of flour and a little bit of water and a little bit of sugar, which always makes bread better. Throw in a little bit of yeast, put it in a round circle, kick a hole out of the middle and you've got a donut. All that air in there was was made because the, the yeast worked through the dough. And if you see in the store, the packets are about this big and it works for about a four cups of flour. It takes very little yeast to work. And he uses that as an explanation that this teaching is slow working. It doesn't take much. Written today, Matthew might use the word cancer. Beware the cancer of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Beware the virus of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He tells them it's not yeast, it's false teaching. But it's like cancer, it's like leaven, it, it passes from one person to the other. False teaching passes from one generation to the other. I remember one time somebody gave us, um, I don't know why they call it friendship bread, because it smells really bad, but it was very kind of them. There's been nobody in the room, but it was, so we had this little jar, if you've ever had it, a friendship bread on our counter, and it had a little note. You're supposed to feed this stuff every day, it eats. And they took it by taking a little bit of the bread that they made of their dough and they put it in a jar. And so every day we would feed this bread until it began to grow. The yeast would take over and it would begin to get this loaf and we would make it. actually tasted pretty good. I was surprised. It didn't smell good until you baked it and it was amazing. But that's what leaven is. It, it, we, we get false teaching in us and we, we open our mouths and we talk and we counsel one another and we, we, we get tweets and we get online and we forward things and it just changes us. And it slowly goes from relationship to relationship. That's the illustration we're supposed to get. And Jesus will tell us it doesn't take much to get the gospel dead wrong. as the Pharisees would add to the gospel, as the Sadducees would take it away. Look at Paul's rebuke of the Galatian church in Galatians 3:3. He 3, 3. says, "Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? How did that leak in? How did you get the gospel right? And all of a sudden, now you feel you have to earn your way back to God. You've got to earn God's acceptance. Well, what does false teaching look like today? Well, I'll say there's nothing new under the sun. J.C. Ryle says this, Jesus who spoke it, this text, saw with prophetical eye the future history of Christianity. The great physician knew well that Pharisee doctrines, Sadducee doctrines would prove the two great wasting diseases of his church until the end of the world. Let's look at those two doctrines. Luke 12, 1 through 3. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, Jesus began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light and what you have whispered in private shall be proclaimed on the rooftops. He says, listen, the Pharisees are hypocrites and pretenders will always be found out in the end. You see, when we live a faith, we speak a faith that we don't live, when, when, when we talk something that our life doesn't reflect at all, it's dangerous it's dangerous for ourselves for a pretender Jesus says in the end there's some that says lord say lord lord and he says depart from me i didn't, didn't know you the lost world has this uh, you know excuse they, they, we don't want to go to the church. they're full of hypocrites zealous christian disciples are in most danger when they're around complacent dry cynical hypocrites you see This may shock you, but it's the church that waters down zeal, not the world. Do you see that? We water down one another's zeal. The world doesn't. It's the church that waters down zeal, not the world. Persecution creates zeal. When the world stands up and the world goes to war against the church, the church stands strong. We lock arms together. We're zealous for Christ. We're we're willing to die for Christ. But, But when somebody gets bold in their faith, we want to go, whoa, hang on a minute. A little bit overboard. I remember as a young believer, I walked into a Christian bookstore. I didn't even know they existed. And there was this book and it said, the title was Real Christians Don't Dance. I didn't I just knew there was a debate about dancing. I didn't care one way or the other necessarily. But I thought, hey, this is great. And it had the word don't X off and had an exclamation point over it. So the real point was real Christians dance. I was like, this is awesome. I can't wait to go back to First Baptist unnamed town and just tell those folks it's okay. I watched Footloose as a kid. It's right, right? So I opened the book and the beginning beginning pages said something like this. Is this what it's all about, really? God sent his only son to suffer and die, to pay a penalty we couldn't pay, to be resurrected, redeeming us for all eternity so that you and I wouldn't... We wouldn't gossip, and we wouldn't chew tobacco, and we wouldn't smoke a cigarette. Wow, Just rebuked right there. I wonder what we, as a church, might substitute for real Christians don't that isn't biblical. Maybe I have the same in my life, as we want to be self-justified, as we as we want to stand thinking that we've got it okay, when really. As we see the faithfulness of those around us, it should convict us to want more, to die more to this world. As we see sin in others' lives and sin in our own lives, it should convict us. You know, you and I are guilty of every sin under the sun just by degree. You can't point to a sin and say, well, I've never done that. Yeah, you're guilty because your heart's guilty of that. It's just by degree, which puts us in a humble place before a loving Savior Let's celebrate and encourage those who align their lives with the calling of discipleship, even when their faith and their response is greater than ours. Let's model for them instead of feeling judged or guilty or fearful or self-righteous when someone takes a bold stand. You know, a lot of people are afraid to to, to stand up and proclaim what God's in their life because people around go, ah, I'm a full judge when you say that. Let's stop that. Let's call new believers to walk with abandonment towards Christ, not expect them to settle into a moderate zeal that stays between our lines of comfort. The church should be an incubator of fiery faithfulness, not a wet blanket. But when we serve, we have to serve with the right motivation. You see, the Pharisees often did the right thing. However, we see in Luke 16, 14 and 15, the it says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all the things and they ridiculed him. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of the Lord. You're lovers of money. You, you exalt yourself. You do your righteous deeds so that other people will give you a good reputation. So that you can avoid really truly repenting and falling on your face before God. Matthew 23, there's seven woes that Jesus gives them, and some of them are like this. It says they preach, they don't practice. They love all their deeds to be seen by others. They love the place of honor. It's easy to slip into doing Christian things for the praise of men. This too is loving that slowly works into our lives. Here's our warning. We're called to beware. Why? Because even as followers of Christ, we can believe false things. These are the best best followers Jesus has on the planet. And he's warning them, beware. J.C. Ryle also says this, Like yeast, they may seem a small thing compared to the whole body of truth. Like yeast, once admitted, they will work secretly and noiselessly. Like yeast, they will gradually change the whole character of the religion, which with which they're with mixed. In other words, syncretism. See, this is a modern problem we have. Syncretism—it's a false teaching. It's the idea, the the reality that we just—we pull views. We we say this is what I think. What do you think? And this is what this blog said. And this is what this world says. And this is what I learned in school. And this is what this person has influenced me with. And so, therefore, I'm going to create a religion that's never existed before, and it's mine. That's syncretism. Most of us are not like the Pharisees and Sadducees, who were active in disbelief. Look, I don't believe you, Christ. We're more like the disciples who were passive in their disbelief. They were passive. They were absorbing the world around them. This is dangerous. The world changes quickly around us. We must be passive no longer. That is highlighted boldly this week. Question I have is Do you know your Bible? Can you spot false teaching when you hear it? Can your kids? Can your grandkids? Jesus says to beware. False views will mix with truth and lead you astray. Some examples of syncretism. As a culture, we've redefined love and it's leavened the church, causing great confusion. As a culture, we've reassessed the value of choice. It's leavened the church, causing great entitlement. As a culture, we've realigned responsibility for society. It's leavened the church, causing great indifference. As a culture, we've rearranged the home, And it's leavened the church, causing great brokenness. As a culture, we've replaced the idea of purpose with chance. And it's leavened the church, causing great hopelessness. This is syncretism. It works like yeast. It's silent in us unless we turn to the word of God. We align ourselves to the Lord under the authority and the structure of the church. In other words, we need God's word and we need the church. That's the content of his warning, and it's heavy. But what are the consequences of the warning? Verse 12, he says, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. A couple things here. The warning is going to require us to be alert and proactive. That's a consequence. We need to be alert. We need to be proactive. Galatians 3, 1 and 2, listen to this. Paul tells the Galatians, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or hearing by faith? You see, he says, who's bewitching you? You were there when Jesus was crucified, when he was resurrected. Be on guard. You're being bewitched to turn away from the very thing that's the most certain, Christ himself. Later in chapter 5, 7 through 10, he says this, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You see, the who, it's a person. This persuasion, it's not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. You see, it's his people. It's obvious that people bring false teaching, but it's hard for us. We like the praise of men. We're afraid to be rejected. We're afraid to be confrontational. We're afraid of men. We have to be alert and proactive, well-meaning, sincere people. And that's the second point is it might separate us from well-meaning people. See, not all false teachers are out there saying, I'm a false teacher. I've studied false teaching and now I'm going to portray false teaching. That's not the way it works. The Pharisees and Sadducees didn't wake up every morning and so I can't wait to trick the church. He will separate us from well-meaning people. Individually, we see this in Matthew 15, a little a few weeks ago, 10 through 12, and he called the people to him and he said to them, hear and understand, it's not what goes in the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles. Then the disciples came to him and said, hey Jesus, come here. Do you not know, or do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? persecution. I remember in college, uh, someone came to speak to our group and they were talking about persecution and we were thinking, okay, you know, persecution. Yeah, we, we get it. And he said, you know, th- imagine the apostle Paul coming back today. He's right here in the university of Baptist church and he's walking around and we're, we're talking about persecution. And we go, he goes, man, you know, 2000 years, I can't imagine the persecution you're dealing with. Oh, you wouldn't believe it. Cause the other day I was in class and I leaned over and somebody overheard me say something about Jesus So they looked at my phone and there was a verse there and they made fun of me. Paul, you wouldn't, you couldn't imagine how hard it is. Or I was at work and I was, I've been labeled as a religious guy and it is devastating. Paul would say, yeah, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Excuse the scar across my neck. Three times I was beaten with rods and once I was stoned for the sake of the gospel. But I don't consider my present sufferings anything compared to the glory and the worth of Christ. Knowing Christ, my Lord. We have to do it as a church. 1 Corinthians 5, 1-2. to two. Paul says, It's reported that there is sexual morality among you. That's the kind that's not tolerated even by pagans for a man as his father's wife. Are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 6 Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven lumps, leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you have unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, malice, and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It, it's, it, the context there is church discipline. You and I need that. The context is let's, let's watch each other's lives. Let's, let's guard each other's well. Let's beware together. Let's call one another to truth and sincerity. It will also separate us from common teaching. Interesting verse in Colossians 2 8 it says this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. In other words, there are very basic things, basic principles of the world, traditions, elemental teachings, but they're really empty and deceitful. And they take you captive. There there may be things that all of us would get a room together short of the word of God. And we say, well, what are you guys thinking about this? And we go, oh, we think that would work. And and we would come to some conclusion and say, it makes sense to us. But then we realize there's a way that seems right to the man and in the end leads to death. And that God's made the wisdom of the world foolishness in light of the gospel. And so we go back to the word and say, oh, we had it all wrong. There wasn't a person here that got it right. Short of God's word, short of his Holy Spirit revealing truth. We must guard each other. In that, many, many churches have abandoned the Word of God in the pulpit. And they all agree that they're right. Well, what's our application? What's our application? Three things we get from the text. First of all, it says, watch out. Literally, this means see, look. Recognize what you see. Get your vision better. The Pharisees and Sadducees were rebuked for not understanding the times. This is a call for us. Do we understand the times today? Watch out. That's your application. We have to watch out. Do we understand the times that we live in? I was talking to Brad Wheeler recently, and he he said, Christianity has experienced a 200-year vacation in America from persecution. Most of the world today suffers, most of the world today understands the times they live in because it's in their face. Most of the world in history. You know, as as Dr. Moore said, you know, in the beginning, you had Jesus on the wrong side of history, the Romans and Roman Empire is dead, and Jesus is just fine. So do we understand? We have to watch out and understand the times. Here's my suggestion to you find good sources of thinkers, pastors, theologians who are discerning. Here's a suggestion. Put the Gospel Coalition in your favorites. Go to their website, the Gospel Coalition. They have great writings, great thinkers. I think they're men and women who understand the times. It's a place to start. Many of you posted their articles online. Watch out. The second one, I'll watch out, is we're supposed to remember. He says, remember the five loaves and the seven loaves. And what do you need to remember this morning? First of all, maybe the Gospel. Maybe you need to remember that we are all without hope. We all believe falsehood. We all were looking for acceptance in places that God didn't intend. Happy there. And God saved us by His own mercy. Maybe you need to remember His faithfulness. Let me challenge you to do this. You're about to have lunch. Share over lunch. Just a story of God's faithfulness for your past. Journal about it. Email somebody a memorial of God's faithfulness in your life. Try it today. Remember, God's so faithful. God is so good. Remember that time? Remember when we were there? Remember we looked at our checking account there were eight cents in there? Remember that time? Remember, remember God's faithfulness. Remember the gospel. And the third one is just to beware, he says. beware. That literally means to take heed, to pay attention, become a watchman. Many false teachers, false views, many worldviews competing for your allegiance, your kid's allegiance. It will leak in. Repeat something from earlier. Do you know your Bible? Can you spot false teaching when you hear it? Can your kids, your grandkids? Check your worldview. He says, beware. Read the Word. Eat the Word. Start today. There's a lot of great resources on worldview. This is not a worldview book, but some... Maybe a starting place for you. It's called What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. Start there. So you, 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 heal, you hold the authentic gospel and then when you see a, a fake gospel, when you see add-ons or takeaways, it becomes more clear to you. So that's the application. Watch out, remember, and beware. Let me pray for us. As a worship team could come as I'm praying. Father, for your glory, your namesake, Help us, God, to stand. Stand in a way that honors you with our attitudes, with our actions, with our um, perspective. God, would you protect this church, protect the members of this church, God, from the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, from hypocrisy, God, from adding to or taking away your precious gospel. Pray we would lock arms together, that we would stand for truth in one another's lives, that we would identify false views in a loving, kind way, a restorative way, God. And Father, whatever comes, whatever comes in the future as you have us on this earth, as you tarry, that we would be privileged and honored and God humble to stand for you in your name. Christ's name, amen.